is for many people, Die Fledermaus is indeed the perfect Viennese operetta. It has, above all, an abundance of tunes. Uh, it is knowing but never sentimental, uh, and it perhaps likes the, lacks the sharp-edged satirical bite of French operetta. Why try to improve human beings, it seems to say? We're all fallen creatures doing our best to have a good time. When Strauss was invited to make an operetta from the French play Le Réveillon, his librettists ironed out some of the riskier elements in the original source, such as consorting with prostitutes, and created a work that centers, of course, around the idea of marriage. The marriage between von Eisenstein and Rosalinda, where it seems that the only clouds on the horizon are a short jail sentence von Eisenstein and perhaps, he doesn't know it, the revenge of the bat. That's Dr. Falke, who's determined to get even with his friend Eisenstein after he was left under a tree recovering from a very alcoholic fancy dress party to which he'd gone with Eisenstein dressed as a bat. Nobody is quite who they seem to be in Die Fledermaus, and the confusions, of course, reach their peak at the party given by the Russian Prince Orlovsky, where Eisenstein is a Marquis, his wife Rosalinda, a Hungarian Countess who sings an immaculate shardash, their maid Adele transformed into a lady, and indeed the governor of the local jail, Frank, the Chevalier Chagrin. Confused? Well, so you should be. This is an operetta that's all about disguises, masking, and concealment. And so utterly Viennese, you could say. No wonder that within six years of its premiere at the Theater an der Wien, Die Fledermaus had been performed in over 170 German-language theaters. Well, we have a quartet of guests with us tonight to explore Die Fledermaus. Jan Pohl, who takes the part of the demented jailer Frosch, will be joining us. Claire Eggington, the soprano who's covering the role of Adele, will be sharing her ideas about the Viennese maid with the most, certainly in Die Fledermaus. And she's joined by Murray Hipkin, who's the assistant conductor on this new production by Christopher Alden of Johann Strand's Masterpiece. But our first guest is the writer, broadcaster and critic David Neese, who's forgotten more about music theatre, I think, than most of us ever really knew. Anyway, will you please welcome David Neese. Borrow, borrow my phone, David. David, um, first question, what are the roots of operetta as a musical form? I, I hinted at France, but should we also be thinking about Germany, Austria? Um, Austria in particular, I mean, it depends which aspect of it you want to look at, because um, if we're talking in terms of a light play, a spoken play with sung musical numbers, then that's a very firmly entrenched Austrian, and particularly a Viennese tradition. I mean, you could even go back as far as Mozart's uh, Die Entführung aus dem Serail, The Abduction from the Seraglio, which of course is essentially a comedy with, with serious moments, a lot of spoken dialogue and musical numbers, and of course Mozart's uh, Inic Schelse's use of, of ensembles as well, that we call a Singspiel, a, a sung play. And in fact, um, in Vienna, particularly in the 1920s and 30s, um, there were a lot of these sung plays, lots with um, Viennese dialect, low dialect for the working classes, it's supposed. And of course, this playwright who we see very little of here, Johann Nestroy, um, whose uh, play 
elaborate title, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's certainly translated as, as On the Razzle. You may have seen Tom Stoppard's version of the, the National Theatre. And amazingly, um, a French version, uh, uh, sorry, an American version of the same play by Thornton Wilder became the musical Hello, Dolly, which strikes me as an extraordinary translation. Yeah. So you had that. And then, of course, you begin to get the influx of operetta, operetta as we know it, which most people tend to think begins with Offenbach and, of course, with naughty Paris and, and lots of very louche and, and, and downright scabrous little scenes going on, moving from Paris, taking Vienna by storm. Um, and, of course, the trouble was that Offenbach by that stage had got very, very expensive. So Vienna needed to create its own operetta tradition. And we're told, historically speaking, that Johann Strauss II was the one to come in and do it. Now, there's a parallel history here, which I only started investigating properly um, over the weekend, because I had to give a talk to the Gustav Mahler Society about Mahler and opera. And of course, Mahler conducted at many different opera houses, and he started his career in the spa towns, um, conducting the very short summer seasons. And what were performed in those summer seasons in the early 18, 1880s um, were not just uh, Die Fledermaus and uh, uh, the Gypsy Baron, the other famous uh, Johann Strauss II operetta, but also much earlier works by Franz von Suppe, um, a very interesting figure to me because we tend to know the overtures like Cavalry, etc., very famous tunes. Um, but there was a particular operetta which was written in the early 1860s, um, so really before Offenbach had become popular, at least in, in Vienna, uh, called Die Schöne Galatea, the beautiful Galatea. Now, of course, it did take its cue from uh, Orpheus in the Underworld, but nevertheless, um, it was part of a tradition that Suppe had set up. And it seems likely, we don't know what Mahler conducted in his first season at Bad Hall, but um, his intendant had just run a season which included Suppe, Offenbach, and Die Schöne Galatea. And there's a tune in Die Schöne Galatea, dum da da dum a lovely waltz tune, which when I was listening to Mahler's Das Lied von der Erde, I was thinking, where have I heard that tune in the, the Abschied? And good Lord, it, it's from Die Schöne Galatea. It's only four notes, but it's very similar. It's such a different context. And I wondered if Mahler at the end of his life was looking back at the very beginning and referring to that particular operetta, which was pure speculation. But I looked into a bit more Suppe, and I thought, well, Suppe deserves a bit more hearing. But Die Schöne Galatea is only 45 minutes long, but wonderful stuff in it. Well, what do you think that Johann Strauss um, brings to the form, not only with Fledermas, but also, as you reminded us, with other works too? What's his particular contribution? Um, as the greatest waltz composer of all time, specifically. Um, and at the time he was approached, and uh, legend says that Offenbach approached him, but it's not true. Um, his wife, his first wife, pressurised him very strongly. He's got to make some money because there are no um, copyright fees in the waltzes he had written, the popular dance tunes he'd written for the famous um, Hofoper balls, the, the, the court balls. So if you write an opera or an operetta, then you're going to get, um, uh, what do you call it, royalties. So um, that was a, a push. And he said, I don't want to do it. I'm, I'm not good with the voice. And in fact, he starts off... Um, um, fitting vocal lines rather uneasily to existing waltz tunes. And this is why when it comes to Fledermaus um, in the early 1870s, he needs help. Um, and this is where this wonderful, interesting character called uh, Richard Genet, I think it's pronounced, uh, not as in Jean Genet, but G-E-N, 
double E, um, who was not just the librettist um, working on an already poor existing libretto, as you said, Christopher adapted from uh, Meillac and Halevi from a French source, which also goes back to a German source to complicate things. Um, uh, he was not just a librettist, but he was also a composer. So the process was that Johann Strauss would send him the rough drafts, he would fit the words to the music very beautifully and fill in some, you know, scoring and send it back. But, and fundamentally, Johann Strauss did the scoring, but, but Genet is the collaborator. It should really be, you know, um, Strauss and Genet. Um. Well, why is it that, I mean, I, I, I'm sure for most people, Die Fledermaus is the kind of touchstone of what we think of as the first great generation of Viennese operator. What is it that makes it so perfect? Um, partly that incredible care in the delicious orchestration, the wonderful sense of, of timing. Um, if I can read, I've got a few little examples here. Mahler um, is talking in, in uh, 1899 to a tenor who doesn't want to lower himself by uh, performing in operetta, and uh, Mahler gives him a lecture as the conductor of the Vienna Court Opera, at which finally Die Fledermaus has arrived. And he says an operetta is simply a small and gay opera, and uh, many classical works come under this heading. The fact that mediocre compositions have been given this title recently makes no different. Johann Strauss's work surpasses them in every way, notably in its excellent musical diction. I like the way that's described. And that is why the administration includes it in its repertoire. So excellent musical diction. Um, unforgettable tunes, of course. The sensuousness of the Viennese waltz. I and mean, there are so many in the score. The waltz dominates. And, and, and this bewitching idea, as I've suggested, that nobody is ever quite who they seem. And this opera both, operator both fulfills our desire not to be ourselves, but also allows us to laugh at the folly of others who don't want to be themselves. Yes. Yes, I mean, they're none of them admirable characters in any way, are they? I mean, one could like Adele, but they're all playing deceptions. And the wife is cheating on the husband. The husband's cheating on the wife. Um, you know, I, I, there is great potential, and I haven't yet seen this production. I'm going after the talk tonight. Um, there is great potential for the darker aspects within, but fundamentally, it has to fizz. Um, what, what, what do you think the darker, the shadows in the work are? Well, there's, there's none in the music. I was just talking to Murray, who's going to demonstrate a bit later about a rather sad little tune, which um, turns out to be mock sadness, which he'll, he'll demonstrate later. But uh, no, there are no dark overtones in the, overtones in the music whatsoever. But um, there can be a ferociousness about it. Um, Eisenstein's fury with his wife his wife's fury with him. Um, you know, everybody gets really worked up at some stage. And of course, Orlovsky, this fascinating character, you know, the, the prince who holds the ball, who is very, you know, bored with life, but likes seeing other people suffer. I mean, that's, that's a potential for... And there is a jail at the end of it, too. And there is a jail. A well, prison. I hear... Well, we don't want to spoil what happens no, no, in this no, no, production. No, 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 not a word, not a word. But um, there's a jail. It, and in fact, the original play was called The Jail, um, the, the, the Berlin play. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you can actually see images from the production on on the screen next to me, so you're getting a little foretaste as we talk. Um, a last question. I, mean, I sometimes actually think this is also about that perennial Viennese topic, class. Where do we fit into the social order? Yes. Yes, and of course, it's at a very interesting time in the 1870s. I mean, not just the fact that the stock market crashed and caused trouble for the, the early run, which was not a disaster. Um, there were 16 performances interrupted by the arrival of Adelina Patti and her Italian company, and then it carried on. And so it had a run of 49, which only stopped because the Orlovsky fell sick. But, um, you know, 
it, yes, it was at a difficult time, um, a time of austerity. We're all familiar with that. People still keep going to the theatre. Um, but also a time when the uh, middle classes, the bourgeoisie, were, were becoming much stronger. And uh, it had stopped being an entertainment as it was in Paris for rich gentlemen who liked to leer at the uh, women's legs. Um, you know, it was now for everybody and became increasingly more proletarian as the century wore on. So the, the social classes are breaking down. And of course, a masked ball is an ideal place for the social classes to get together. I mean, think of Carnival and think of Nielsen's Masquerade, that great Danish work, where, you know, the high and the low will get together. Um, and it becomes a sort of orgy, if you like, of... of um, of uh, people of different classes, all in disguise, nobody knowing who anybody else is. Of course, in Fledermas, they do know who each other are, which is part of the extra layer of humour. I think I can promise you there will be legs to leer at this right. evening, okay. uh, all of you. Uh, David Dees, thank you very much indeed. Stay Thanks. with us, if you yeah, will. Okay. Um, indeed, a round of applause. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by the soprano Claire Eggington, who's covering the role of Adele, and Murray Hipkin, who's the assistant conductor on this new production of Defenders. Will you welcome Claire Eggington and Murray Hipkin? <laughs> Claire, you're going to sing for us in a moment, but I can't resist talking a little bit about Adele first. Do you think Adele, as you see her, is a gold digger, or is she a girl with a real heart? I think really she is a gold digger. Um, there's not a lot of evidence that suggests she has a real heart. She's a girl that knows what she wants and she'll do what it takes to get it. And she doesn't really mind about the consequences or how it affects other people. So really a gold digger. <laughs> and and is, she, is she smarter than her mistress? Is she one of these great clever servants? Is she smarter than Rosalinda von Eisenstein? Uh, probably. She's certainly more streetwise mm. and manipulative. Um, and she's really learned a lot from her mistress. She's learned her social graces. She's spent a long time in service, so she, that's, that's what allows her to step into a ball and to some degree get away with passing herself off. It's very interesting seeing with her with her sister, um, who is a chorus girl, I seem mm. to remember. I mean, there is no doubt as who's the, the smarter cookie, is there? No. <laughs> uh, I think. No, I think, uh, yeah, the fact that she's um, found herself there and is able to take control and become the centre of attention and you know she's and she's not even even when she finds out that her sister hasn't invited her she's not that worried you know she's there and she's in her world has every right to be there and will make the most of it it's a networking opportunity for her <laughs> i love the idea of a networking <laughs> yeah. opportunity a math ball yeah. <laughs> um, what are the challenges vocally for the singer who takes the role well it's um really a lyric coloratura role which means lots of high notes and lots of fast notes. Um, it's got quite a wide range, actually. It goes down to um, an A-flat below middle C and up to a top D. So that's, you know, quite a range for a coloratura role. Um, it's... Um, actually, Adele has two arias, which none of the other characters have, and on top of ensemble pieces, and um, they're quite... Two show-stopping arias, really, quite challenging. Um, and... And on top of that, there's spoken dialogue, and quite a lot of spoken dialogue, which is another skill in itself. And particularly, you know, within the Colosseum, it's, you know, it's a big house in which to project your dialogue. And also the text in the arias themselves, because it's, the text is so important to portray her sort of playful character and, you know, what she's getting across, her descriptions, that um, that's quite, you know, a skill as well. Is this the first time you've, you've sung operetta? 
Uh, no, I've done a bit of Gilbert and Sullivan, um, but it's the first time I've studied or sung the role of Adele, so... And, and uh, is GNS a good kind of starting point for the, <laughs> the challenges of dialogue, song? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think it was a good sort of training ground for approaching this, um, because it has the same requirements, really, and, you know, so much GNS with the patter songs requires the importance of the text. Enough talk, we should have some music. Okay. Which of Adele's two R's are you going to sing I'm, for us? I'm going to sing the laughing song. Oh.
Claire, thank you. Utterly irresistible. Utterly irresistible. Um, Murray Hepkin, um, can I ask you, what for you, um, Assistant Conductor, uh, what are the pleasures of this score? Well, I think to answer that question, really have to start with the overture. And I was thinking about um, this earlier today. Um, there's, in the whole score, there's such a huge variety of, of character and moods. And I like David's um, reference to, was it musical, perfect musical diction? I, I know exactly oh. what he means by that. Um, and I, I, was, I was thinking about it, that we, the, the, the overture is very, very familiar to many of us now, because we've heard it so many times. Um, but if you can sort of imagine that you hadn't, um, I think what's so marvellous about it is, is that he subliminally plants all these amazing tunes into little short bursts and they sort of repeat around. So when you actually hear them in context later on in the show, you feel like you know them. I think that's one of the great skills. And of course, as I say, many of us do know them now. And, and it may be the first time you've seen the opera sta operetta stage tonight, in which case you'll, you'll, you'll have that feeling of, oh, of sort of feeling comfortable because you think, oh yeah, I know that one. And I just wanted to... Um, give you a little illustration, as David referred to earlier. Um, there's one uh, melody quite near the beginning of the overture. It's, it's the first slow section in it, um, with an oboe solo. You can't really miss it. Where it's the most beautiful kind of uh, a sense of longing and tenderness. And I'm going to play it to you. Just, just a few bars. And when that comes back in context, it's basically part of this big deception that, that we've been talking about. And it's, it's Rosalinda pretending to be sad that her husband's going away, when of course she can't wait to get rid of him so that Alfred can come and take his place. So it's that's a little example of how we're fooled into, into, this, into this sort of the character of this tune. And then when it comes back, it's completely the opposite. I thought you were going to play it for us, but never mind. Oh, well, it's the same. It's just it's, it's sarcastic. <laughs> I can't do sarcasm on the piano very easily. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the score literally kind of lilts across the ear uh, in the audience, but I imagine that it poses pretty big challenges for, 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 for the players. This is not easy music to play. No, it's absolutely not. Um, and I think also because um, there are, there's a very, obviously, very long tradition um, and many traditions arising in, in the interpretation of the score. But as a result, lots and lots of personal choices. For example, I, I can play you a tiny little bit um, if I'm going to play exactly what's on the page now. which you might think was really, really unmusical. But, but as soon as you put a few of the little choices that have to be made in, it'll sound, maybe sound a little bit more like this. So, you know, the conductor was had to go through almost bar by bar and, 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 and rehearse the orchestra and, and make, make these decisions which aren't actually written on the page. And it's, it's about finding a style and, and deciding which traditions to keep and which to, um, which to ignore. David was talking earlier about, about, about his admiration for the orchestration. You would share your admiration for what yes. Strauss is an orchestrator Absolutely. Does. I mean, this is the first time I've, I've worked on Fledermaus, and so I was coming to it pretty fresh. And I've been, been um, amazed by the colour and, the, and, the, uh, and, and, and it doesn't shy, shy away from 
being big and brassy when it needs to, um, as you'll hear. This is, of course, by Johann Strauss, who, again, David reminded us, made his reputation as the great composer of waltzes. Now, is there something special about how you have to do a, a Viennese waltz? Some little musical trick, sleight of hand. Of, sort of waltz with a wooden leg, I always think. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the tradition is to, to accelerate the first beat and to stay up in the air for the second one and then to, fall, and to release on the third one, which... Um, I mean, it all, of course, it goes without saying. I mean, it, it's a dance step which developed from the, the earlier folk waltzes, the, the Lendler, and then before that, the Minuet, um, which I understand involves this kind of suspension in the middle. And, you, and, and I think that's where it comes from. If I may do one more uh, little mm. demonstration, and, and again, this goes back to, to the, the challenges that we faced uh, with, with music like this, is that you have to decide when to do it and when not to because you can't have kind of some people doing it and some people not. So I just wanted to show you a little, a little bit from the um, finale to Act One, where there are th it's in 3-4, and there are three distinct sections. The first one's a drinking song, the second one's a landlord, and the third one's a Viennese waltz. So press stop if, I, if we're running out of time, but I'm just going to go through. And the drinking song has a very strong kind of three in a bar, first beat. And then the landlord's much more lyrical, with a bit of yodeling in it. And then suddenly we're into Viennese waltz. Here's the drinking song bit. folk waltz. And I'll skip a little bit and take you to the, the refrain, which is the classic Viennese waltz as we know it, with an accelerated first beat and then a little suspension. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Those of you who are familiar with the Fledermaus will know there is one character who doesn't sing a single note of music in the opera. It is, of course, the jailer Frosch. And we're extremely lucky to have as our last guest uh, Jan Paul, who sings, or sorry, speaks the role of Frosch. Will you please welcome Jan Paul? Is this the first time you've, you've played Frosch? No, actually I played Frosch in Toronto before in Canada for the Canadian Opera Company, but that time was in German, so this is the first time in English on stage for me. And yeah. what's, what's the appeal of the role? What's the attraction? What do you like about it? Well, you know, he kind of comes in like the deus ex machina and he sort of elevates the chaos that's already quite at, a, at some really high level towards, new, um, towards something really, really, really high, so I really like that. <laughs> There's a great tradition with Froshies of, of them being able to make this a little cameo of their own that sometimes in perhaps less satisfactory productions seems not to belong to Deflated Mouse at all. But it is an opportunity for an actor really to explore without sometimes the constraints perhaps of, 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 of the director, um, the role. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you pretty much, you you pretty much have a groundwork where you can, which you can use, and then take it take it to another, or make 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 your own of, out of that. Because there's, I feel like there's so much there's an an artistic level ingrained in that character that you can really use for yourself. And in that production, especially Chris's idea was that Frosch itself is um, 
is not the drunkard, but instead a young police officer who comes in and um, try, tries to evaluate what's going on and then will take over eventually. And the idea of Frosch back then was that you had that character which which was the way it was written actually a criticism towards the ruling class in the Hungarian-Austrian Empire. And now we turn that criticism towards the decadence of the show itself and pretty much you have a whole repression and a dark force coming about on anything else. I want to come back to that in a moment. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about you yeah. because you were born in Berlin yeah. uh, and trained in Berlin, I think. But did you not also have a period in Vienna where you no, trained? No, I'm from Berlin. I grew up in Berlin and I had my acting training in Vienna. Right. Now, is that a good good place to play Frosch from, so to speak? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's brilliant. Looking, when I was in Toronto and hearing the actors actually perform in German, I was really shocked how much of my Viennese experience is ingrained in that, in that play. And you pretty much any any character you feel you kind of met before so <laughs> it's, it's really it's really awkward you know and since vienna is such a such a small place with a lot of money and a lot of talent it seems like everybody's connected with one another and you will meet that person but then he knows that one and somehow they all elevate one another to the next level and there's a saying in, in german actually in viennese Smile from the front, scratch from the back. <laughs> so, that, so, so much for the evil pranks. That, so that, 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 yeah, von vorne, von And so, yeah, and, but of course the champagne is to blame. And it always is. It always know, is, it yeah. Always is. But I, to be serious for one more second, I mean, do you think that having trained in Vienna gives you a sort of a, 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 an access to an, an operetta like Fledermaus that you totally, wouldn't? Totally. As I said before, I mean, it, the, upper, the, the dialogue and the songs really convey a Viennese feeling to me. The, 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 aura, the solemn aura, the somehow elevated flair of Vienna, which you know, which, yeah, it's the champagne, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Very similar. I've always wondered, what is it like to, I mean, like any other character I think of, David will correct me, yeah. is the Duchesse von Gerolstein. Yeah, Grand Duchesse. Um, a character, be the only character speaking amidst a cast who are, are busy singing as well as speaking. I wonder what is it like? Well, to me, it's, First of all, big freedom that I don't have to sing because I didn't want anybody of you to hear me sing. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but apart from that, it's, you, you don't really think like that because you, you act with, the other, with, with your partners. And to me, I, personally, I'm really impressed with the singing because we've got some beautiful voices. We've got an awesome chorus. And yeah, that, that's mostly it. When you were starting work on Frosch, did you try to create a kind of prehistory for him um, uh, uh, before he arrives in this opera? Did you kind of decide where he's come from, what he believes in, who he is? Yeah. Do you want, do you want yeah, me to Yeah, tell, tell us who you okay. thought... Who Roll for the sound of music. Uh, yeah, pretty much, pretty much, pretty much. So, so let, let me go back, back a little further. So, so Chris's idea was to, to create, um, show, show in the Fledermaus, three episodes of European history. The, the first one starts with the pre-Freud repression, then it opens up, Dr. Falke coming in and taking everybody to understanding themselves more into, into the party and where people let, let go of them and kind of reinvent themselves, and uh, which kind of represents the 20s, early 30s. And then the third act starts, and then the new force is coming in, which is me. And for, for our background work, of course, you, if you have a young, ambitious 
police officer. We we took him to be to be part of the fascist movement, unfortunately, and. Yeah, and he's there to evaluate everything. So you see my character appear throughout the opera uh, several times, but actually that's him plotting for taking over in the third act, which uh, eventually I will do. But also it was really important for us to keep the anarchistic element in there and not let go of that, so that it's just like straightforward yelling. But you know, we, we wanted to play with that. And ironically also, what I have to add is that we didn't change any dialogue. I have a little monologue where we added a little something, but actually you could take the dialogue as it was and transform it into, into that, which we found kind of interesting. Yeah. Without giving, I hope, anything away, um, the, a, a penny dropped when I came to see the dress rehearsal, which was that, in a way, Frosch is the other half of Alfred, the lover of Rosalind. If, if he's the kind of, you know, the light half, you're the dark half. You're the same sort of character um, on either side of a mirror. Is that, is that being a little bit too analytical, or do... Well, no, 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 it's not analytical at all. I, I agree to the, to the, to the term to the point of excessiveness, because Alfred is extremely excessive, and for my character is the dark force, and it stands for repression. So in that, in that term, it's, it's, uh, that, that it's totally correct. On the other hand, um, the idea is actually that there is the pendulum on the, of the clock swinging back and forth, and one end stands for repression, and the other one stands for deliberation. And, uh, and that, that watch slash clock is being brought in by Falke, Who's been, who, who is as an in interpretation of Dr. Freud. So the pendulum actually swings back and forth between Falk and I, and at the end I'm holding the watch in my hand, but I'm not telling what's going to happen with it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a little time. Um, um, questions to any of our four guests would be welcome. If you'd like to ask a question, put your hand up and we'll get a microphone to you. Who'd like to ask anything? In the front row. I'm, I feel that my question might seem a little bit simplistic, but often people speak to me about English uh, operas in English at the Colosseum, and they claim it loses something because it's in English. Um, it'd be very interesting to hear from you as the opera is written in your home language of German. Uh, does the singspiel change in any way when it comes across in English. That's a that's a really good question. Thank you. So I've seen I've, yeah yeah yeah. Well, the the essence of the of the opera is the same, and and the feeling it conveys is is being kept. However, especially with the dialogue, there are so many little Viennese dial. Just it's really subtleties that, that of course are getting lost in the in the translation and and it's impossible to translate them, but mostly for I would say 99.9 percent .9 it it's pretty much the same feeling. But then there's that 0.1 percent which is different. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have, a, do we have another question from anybody? We're going to be wonderfully English. Yes, in the front row, the microphone is coming. Play with words in English the same way as you play with words in German. Did everyone hear the question? 
It was that because English and German have a kind of cousinage as languages, uh, maybe there's an opportunity to play between English and German uh, in a way that would not presumably be the case if it was Italian and English. Yeah, I, well, though that's the 99.9%. But let me, let me give you an example. There's a German word for arguing, which is zerstreiten, so over-argued. And then there's a word for being married, which is verheiratet. So, but once you take that Z and put it in front of the verheiratet, um, it becomes zerheiratet, which is not a verb itself, but it gives, a, it, it gives an insight of being unhappily married by just changing that one letter. And you, you can't translate that into English. Or, for instance, uh, one character is called Dr. Blind. And in the Toronto version, I would bring Alfred in and would and you will see because I don't want to give too much away, but we couldn't use that line. And he said, but there's nobody here. And in German, I would say, well, it's impossible because he's blind. But that doesn't make any sense in English, you know? So I thought it was funny, nobody else, so we cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have another question? Anybody else who'd like to ask anything? Right, ladies and gentlemen, we have a little treat for you. This, we're going to have some more music. You are very fortunate. This is entirely uh, unplanned, but we're going to have Adele's second aria. Um, so we have a second bite of this wonderful role. Oh, my God. 
Ladies and gentlemen, try tapping your toe to that and you'll get cramp. Um, can I just say, firstly, a huge thank you to Claire Eggington and to Murray Hipkin. Uh, but also thanks to you for being here and asking questions. And of course, to our other two guests, David Neese and Jan Pohl. Thank you both and all of you very much indeed. <laughs> <laughs>